Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and Diana O'Carroll. And first up, we'll take a look at some of this week's top science stories. Biological clocks play an essential role in physiology and in controlling behaviour, from regulating sleep cycles in animals to balancing photosynthesis in plants. Now, research published in Nature suggests that our model of how the clocks work might actually be wrong. Current models of circadian clocks rely heavily on feedback loops that are based around transcription and translation, that's the reading of DNA and the subsequent protein production. Essentially, the products of transcribing clock genes in turn regulate how associated genes are expressed, and that leads to a roughly 24-hour feedback loop. But now, John O'Neill and Achilles Reddy at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge have shown that non-transcriptional mechanisms are capable of maintaining a clock in human red blood cells, which have no nucleus and are therefore incapable of transcription. To study the clocks in red blood cells, they looked at a family of antioxidant proteins called peroxyredoxins, or PRX, which is an awful lot easier to say. They are responsible for clearing reactive oxygen species like peroxide out of the cell. A subclass of PRX molecules undergo an oxidation-reduction reaction, also known as a redox reaction, with a very regular cycle. To assess PRX's suitability as a clock molecule, O'Neill and Reddy took red blood cell samples from healthy volunteers and stored them in darkness and at constant temperature. This enabled them to take samples from the cells every four hours and confirm that this redox cycle did indeed take around about 24 hours. Now then they needed to see if this system fulfilled the other criteria of being a clock molecule, so they attempted to entrain the cells to a cycle of high and low temperature. Now this mirrors the temperature very variations you or I might experience on a daily basis. After just 48 hours, the PRX redox cycle was seen to sync with the new temperature regime. PRX proteins are very highly conserved. Now, this means that they're found in a huge range of species, including mammals like us, but also in plants and in algae. In a related paper, also in this week's Nature, Andrew Miller from the University of Edinburgh, along with colleagues here in Cambridge and also in France, showed the same mechanism in action in Osteococcus tori. That's a single-celled eukaryotic alga. Now, this raises some very interesting questions about our current understanding of circadian clocks and it raises some exciting prospects for our understanding of clock evolution. So it sounds almost like there's a clock acting without a brain, a circadian clock without its DNA brain, which is a very odd situation. It's a very interesting situation and it just shows that what we thought we had a pretty good grasp on this but really we don't and we need to because it's very important if you look at the the illnesses that people suffer as a result of shift work, then messing with our biological clocks obviously has profound physiological impact. Scary stuff. Well, also this week, a team in both Hong Kong and Chicago have found that the levels of activity in two specific areas of the brain can be used to predict how well someone is learning a second language. Lehi Tan and colleagues found that the left chordate and fusiform gyrus areas of the brain displayed more activity the better the language student performed in their tests. Now, the fusiform part of the brain is located at the back and the base, while the chordate is found closer to the centre and is shaped a bit like those hooked headphones that you get in 
sort of put them over your ear. Um, they used fMRI, that's functional magnetic resonance imaging, in between tests taken by 26 10-year-old Chinese students, and they were learning English. Uh, they were given the first written test just before the fMRI scan and the second one a year later. Now, during the fMRI scan, the children were asked to identify written English words, and they found that those who demonstrated the greatest amount of activity in the chordate and fusiform regions during the scan performed better in the first and second tests. So publishing in the journal PNAS, Tan and his team believe that the amount of activity in these two brain areas can therefore be used to predict how well a student will do when they learn a second language. So can I use this as an excuse for me being absolutely appalling at learning languages? Yeah, obviously they're just turned off. <laughs> um, <laughs> that bit of my brain must be missing, I suppose. Oh, well. Also this week, researchers at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute have been looking at changes in the genome of a troublesome pathogen, Streptococcus pneumoniae. This bacteria is responsible for a broad range of human diseases, including pneumonia, ear infection and bacterial meningitis. Fortunately, because this bacteria has been infecting humans for so long, we have samples from all over the world going back many, many years. And this means we can compare them genetically to see what has changed in response to modern antibiotics and to vaccines. And we're joined now by Dr. Stephen Bentley from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. That's a pleasure. Now, the idea that bacteria change genetically in response to drugs or vaccines isn't new. We've known about this for a while. What's novel about your work? As you say, we've, we've known about these phenomena occurring over time since antibiotics have been in use. But the kind of breakthrough that we have in the, the projects that we're now able to do has been driven by our ability to sequence large numbers of genomes. Ten years ago, when we, tried, when we sequenced the genomes of things like TB, Macrobacterium tuberculosis, one project to sequence the genome and one isolate which was chosen to represent the species would have taken a couple of years and cost one or two million pounds. The new sequencing technologies allow us to sequence hundreds or thousands of isolates at a cost of around £100 per isolate and the, the turnaround of generating the sequence data is, is down to a matter of weeks. That allows us now to exploit the collections of isolates that you mentioned earlier to really drill down onto the evolution of a, of a population. So what samples have you actually been looking at? I understand they are from all over the world and actually going back quite a long time. The idea of the project was to really use the whole genomes to analyse the evolution over, the, over the, the period since the introduction of antibiotics. So when we uh, tried to collect the samples, we were looking for as much geographic and temporal uh, coverage as possible. So the collection that we ended up with was 240 isolates spanning the period 1984 to 2007 and covering 22 different countries around the globe. And what sort of scale of changes are you actually seeing in the genome here? Substitution mutations, which basically occur at random, um, one of those will occur approximately every 15 weeks. Um, but there's another mechanism for variation, which we call recombination, and that's basically where the bacteria are able to swap uh, DNA with their neighbours. On the BBC website, there's a, a guy, James Gallagher, who's come up with an, a really nice analogy. That's like going down to the shops and uh, swapping eye colour with someone in the queue at the checkout. But for the bacteria, that means that they can generate enormous amounts of variation in their genome, and each variation that's generated then can be 
selected for possible advantage. So in a situation where the organisms are being exposed to antibiotics on a regular basis, which is what's happened in all bacteria since the introduction of antibiotics in the 60s and 70s, if they acquire a variation in their sequence which gives them an advantage over the rest, that's going to give them a good chance of uh, proliferating. Now, obviously, the bacteria can't, uh, as you say, meet down the shops and have a chat and say, I've got these bright blue eyes, they've been really useful for me for survival, why don't you have a copy? Mm -hmm. There can't be a process by which they know that if they translate these genes from another cell, that'll be useful. How does that process actually work? Is it, is it quite random? It is entirely random. So um, what happens with, with Streptococcus pneumoniae, they, they uh, live in the human nasopharynx. And as far as we know, that's their, their only um, natural niche. Um, but there are other, other bacteria that live there, some of which will be members of the same species, but maybe only slightly related. And then there's other species as well. And as cells grow and divide and then go through a cycle where there's actually death, so some cells will lyse, lysing the cells releases the bacteria into the environment and that allows bacteria like uh, strep pneumo to potentially take up that DNA. So this ability to take up DNA from the environment is not um, ubiquitous in bacteria, it only happens in certain species. But strep pneumo does that, and it is entirely random, and some people have thought about whether it might actually be for nutritional needs as much as anything that they take up the DNA. So the randomness is there, but then selection kicks in. So it's really, if the variation you introduce is disadvantageous, then that will very quickly die out. If it happens to give you an advantage, then it will proliferate. With all these random changes, do you see changes evenly across the genome or are there regions that are very heavily conserved and regions that are very highly variable? Yes, so we see these uh, variation hotspots in the genome and it's interesting that those variation hotspots tend to be associated with surface antigens. So the major surface antigen in strep pneumo is the surface polysaccharide and that's one region where we've seen frequent recombinations. Now, these are the sugars or the proteins that are on the surface of the cell that it actually presents to, say, our immune system. Exactly, yes. And what's interesting from the data that we've seen is that that region is a hotspot, so it is swapping that in and out with, with its neighbours and changing its, uh, its surface polysaccharide. But these changes were already in the population at fairly high levels, so that in around 2000, when we started to introduce a vaccine, which targeted those surface polysaccharides, we could see that in the population there were already variants generated which were going to be able to evade that vaccine because they didn't have the vaccine target. So they essentially come preloaded to avoid our, our vaccine attempts. The population does, yeah. How can this help us to develop better vaccines or better antibiotics? Already, the, since the seven-valent vaccine was introduced because these capsule switches had been spotted, new generations of vaccine have been generated where they now target 10 or 13 of those types. So going forward, we would hope to be able to continue to monitor the population in very, very high resolution using whole genome sequencing so that we'll be able to understand better how the pathogens are responding to the, to the clinical practices and then maybe we can adjust those clinical practices to make them more efficient. Excellent. Thank you very much and thank you for joining us. That was Dr Stephen Bentley. If you'd like to read more about that, it's published this week in the journal Science. 
Now, animals come to better decisions more quickly in larger groups, according to research published in the journal PNAS this week. Group decision-making is seen in many social communities, from ants to humans. In fact, it forms the basis of financial markets and even the behaviour of the internet. It's clearly evolved many times over, but exactly how the decision-making process in a group differs from that of any one individual is actually quite hard to determine. An international team of researchers, including Ashley Ward at the University of Sydney, and Jens Klaus at Humboldt University in Berlin created a very simple decision-making task. It's a Y-shaped chamber where one path contains a replica predator and the other path is clear and safe. They then introduced mosquito fish, these are Gambusia holbrookii, to the task either on their own, in pairs, or in groups of four, eight or sixteen. They then monitored how the fish moved and which direction they chose to take to see if a, if the group's size would alter the speed and the accuracy of the decision-making process. They found that lone fish took longer to reach a decision, swimming more slowly and changing direction more often. But even then, they only chose the safe route a little over half the time. As the group size increased, the decisions became more accurate and much faster. In fact, the larger group chose the safe route up to 90% of the time, and this is despite swimming faster and taking a more direct route. So the next step was to try to work out why groups are so much better at these decisions. As the variation between different lone fish was actually insignificant, this rules out the idea that any particular fish is an expert at spotting predators, so they're not benefiting from these few stars amongst the group. There is some evidence that the group does divide the responsibility of being vigilant. Now, that means each fish needs to scan a smaller area, so the amount of direction changes they make will reduce in a larger group. Tasks sharing like this also means that the fish must rely on social cues in order to make the decisions, and that was seen when observing the fish who were closest to the leading fish. This research suggests a very high degree of cooperation, division of labour and very rapid communication between members of the group, and these are all factors that would promote the evolution of group decision-making. Now, I think you know what I'm going to say, but... um... (laughs) As anyone who's ever attended a naked scientist meeting will know, <laughs> um, that's not. Uh, is that really true? Um, well, <laughs> I, I do wonder if perhaps the importance of the decision, if it's life or death, uh, it, with regards to running away from a predator, might be perhaps a little bit more important than uh, deciding what sort of tea we're going to buy and what biscuits we need in the office this oh, week. I don't think we uh, we talk about that. Perhaps it's more to do with <laughs> us sort of being radio people and just wanting to talk a lot. Maybe. It could be. We do all like the sound of our own voice. <laughs> <laughs> Could be that. Um, well, also this week, researchers in America have dramatically enlarged the catalogue of known genes which allow an organism to break down plants. This new information could be very useful in producing biofuel from plant matter. So Matthias Hess and colleagues found their new biomass breaking genes and genomes swimming around in the rumen of a cow. Now, the rumen is a fascinating part of the cow's digestive system in which lots of bacteria, yeasts and fungi live. These microbes break down all the grass and leaves that the cow munches through, so you can imagine that a probiotic yoghurt means absolutely nothing to these host animals. Publishing in Science, Hess and his team were able to sequence a quarter of a terabase, which is an enormous amount, a trillion bases of genomic information from many different microbes involved in digestion. And they were also able to identify the very genes which were involved in plant degradation and the proteins which are thought to do the work. So just in terms of the data generated, it's quite a step forward in sequencing large communities of different microbes. And the team have managed to demonstrate that it's possible to construct genomes of 
new, previously unknown organisms from the same mass of data. But the authors hope that this work will ultimately help other researchers in developing more efficient ways of producing biofuels. And given that we know that the methane that uh, our animals in fields produce may actually be a greenhouse gas of its own right, using their guts to produce biofuels seems a very sensible route. Yeah, exactly. If you could work out which microbes are the most efficient or produce exactly the biofuel that you want, then um, that's all the better for, for making the process even better. Thank you very much, Diana. And if you'd like to read up on anything we've covered so far this week, the references and transcripts for each news story we've discussed are online at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.